Amazing. Am I on? I don't think we can tell the difference either way, to be fair, sometimes. Um, wasn't that video sobering? Tell you what, even though uh, it was wonderful seeing Ian vlog by himself, um, which you can catch his new YouTube channel, Cheesecake Adventures, sometime. <laughs> um, it's just sobering. Stuff that we've brought in is directly going into the hands of Ukrainians that are in desperate need for it. So church, I just want to add to what Ian's encouragement was. Let's actually contribute and bring stuff in that is going to bless other people more than we probably need it right now. It's good. It's very good. We're on mission, family. Um, well, first of all, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you're new here, very, very warm welcome. It is such a blessing and privilege for you to be here. Um, I'm Jeeves, one of the elders of the church. Uh, we've been going through a series in Revelation. Before we start that, I just want to say now, we're also doing communion. I recognise that the joke often about me preaching is I take a long time. Strap in, because that stereotype is going to be very, very key today. Uh, you just, I just want to pre-warn you in that, first of all. Um, but it's going to be a good morning, I think, diving into Revelation, fresh again, to help us unpack this a little bit more. But I just want to use an analogy to begin with. Can someone tell me what this is? What is this? Go on, Roger. It's a map. It's a map. I'm so surprised. The generation I thought that wouldn't know what this is, is the one that answers. Praise God, we're doing something right. It is a map. Now, what is the most important bit about when you open up a map, you know, that large A0 bit of paper that you unfold 22 times and you can't fold back in and you have to jam it into a pocket? What is the most important thing of a map? Is it true? Where you are? Health. What else is really important about the map? I'll tell you what, it's probably where like the legs are and all that kind of stuff, but how do you know actually what is a leg and what's not? How do you know what's a road and what's not? How do you know what's a caravan stop and what's not? The way you tell that is through a key. Mm. And that's, that's how you tell. Otherwise a whole bunch of symbols randomly just blotted onto a page. Until you have a key, it's really difficult to be able to define and understand what a map is actually trying to tell you and that good information is trying to get across. Where we are in Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, which we're covering today, is kind of going to be ex dis described and explained in the same way of kind of being the key for the whole book of Revelation. These two chapters is as if it's the key, it's the helpful guide to unpack the rest of the book. So today is pretty significant in our origin series. Why am I saying that? Well, even though we call it the book of Revelation, it's actually a letter. It's a letter from John, who's in Patmos, who is there. He was in German Patmos, back there. It was a letter from him to these seven churches in Asia Minor. But as we know with biblical letters that are written, they're meant to be taken around, read aloud, and digestible. Easy to understand and actioned. Now, who's read the book of Revelation? Yeah? Is it digestible, easy to understand? and easy to kind of comprehend. Not always, <laughs> not always. But it's a letter. And it's really important that we remember it's a letter. It's why in New Frontiers we love Paul's letters. We love Romans and Ephesians. We love, we love these great letters because they give us great truth, easy to understand, and with the same category of letter is Revelation. So I just want to debunk that myth. I'm kind of going, Revelation is a very weird book. It is a weird book, but it's meant to be understood. It's meant to be digestible in that way. Often the reason why Adam covered this from the first week, often the reason why it is 
kind of difficult to understand this because it's prophetic and um, um, no, apocalyptic. I was running into that word and trying to say it. Apocalyptic. It's, it's both of those things, which is odd in terms of the writing for us to understand. But those who were hearing it, when it's read out loud, they should have understood it. And so therefore we can understand it. How? These two chapters. That, that's what these two chapters are there for. It feels random that within a letter you have letters. It's kind of an inception, do you know what I mean? Dream inside a dream. It's letters inside a letter. But the reason why it's, it's perfectly positioned there to help us understand. If you remember last time that Ian preached, he was talking about this vision, the beginning of the image of the Son of Man, Jesus. And the descriptions of Jesus in that way. And Jesus seeing and describing these seven lampstands, imagery of the tabernacle, the fulfillment of the tabernacle. And he goes on from that place to describe it. Ian said last week, people often see the church before they see Jesus. That's so true. That is the case. And that's why after the image of Jesus, you then have these perfectly placed letters to these seven churches for us to understand. Revelation is not a jigsaw, a bunch of different puzzle pieces that are kind of joined together. It's, it's more like um, a rugby or football replay, like a VAR replay, where you're taking different camera angles, all from different sides, but replaying the same shot. That, that's what this book is more like. Zooming in and out to understand the image better of what is going on. That's what we're looking at. And so today it's really important we understand these seven letters, these two chapters, so we can ground the context of the whole book. That's the idea, that's what I'm trying to get across today. Something to note before we kind of take our train ride around the different cities. First thing, the cultural context at the time for all these seven churches in Asia Minor was that Caesar had positioned themselves to be worshipped as sons of God. Adam described this really, really well in the first time when we looked at Revelation. It's been over two centuries of Roman rule. Before that, the Greek ruled that as well. And how they would kind of make people conform is they would kind of um, kill off those who opposed and bless those who honoured. That's kind of the way of doing it, really crudely summarising it. Kill those who oppose, bless those who honour me. And how the honouring looked like and how it transformed was, you honour me by worshipping me. You honour me by saying, I'm the son of God. That's, that's how it kind of worked. So you want to trade, you worship Caesar. You want to educate, you worship Caesar. You want to travel, you worship Caesar. You want security, you worship Caesar. You want a salad, you worship Caesar. <laughs> I'm a dad now, I have to get a pun in there. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's the idea. Therefore, Christians, for Christians, it was a hard and dark time to be different. To, to really honour the God that they believed in and to worship God compared to falling into everything else and worshipping Caesar. It wasn't just by looking a bit awkward, it was literally life or death to do so. First context. Secondly, just to kind of describe, each letter is laid out in the same way. Starts off with the angel uh, of the church referencing the elders who would read it out or recipient who would read it out and naming the town. These words are from uh, the word, sorry, these are the words of plus a description of Jesus that we look at in Revelation 1. 
A commendation, complaint or command addressed to the church. And a call to listen to the message of the Spirit, whoever has ears, let them hear, that kind of thing. You'll, you'll always kind of have that. And a promise award for those who overcome and conquer. Yeah, so they're all laid out in the same way. Just context, because we're not going to be able to read out all the verses, but it's just really helpful for you to kind of notice. Third thing, Jesus is stating each letter from a place of love, conviction, and challenge, not condemnation. It's really important to call this out, because we're going to hear stuff, and we're going to go over stuff that feels really condemning. But it's not, because Jesus isn't condemning. Jesus is convicting and challenging, absolutely. And we should be challenged from today. Man, have I been challenged from preparing this. But it's not condemnation. It's really important that we catch from that same place. It's love that is meant to challenge us. That's where we're coming from. Last thing, it was seven churches that I was referenced. Not five, not six, not eight, not nine. It was seven. That we know from Revelation how symbols are working. We know that numbers are symbols, which means completeness, wholeness. Therefore, even though the letter might be to seven individual churches, the intent was it was for the church. Which means, as we are part of the church, these letters are for us. Therefore, reading it in a way that understands the context, the primary points and the application, kind of similar to what we do with the young people using OPA, it's a great way to explain it as we reference and recognise that it is for us. So this is not a historical um, lecture about these books. This is a preach to help us ground what these contextual places are and understand the application and primary point of what is meant to be for us. So all aboard the train for chapter two and three as we take our journey through the seven cities. Let me pray. Holy Father, I just pray that you would enable us in this way. Just enjoy God what you want to say. We want to speak and speak through these letters. Your holy name, Amen. <clears throat> and just hands up quickly, who are notes takers? Who likes taking notes? Be, don't be ashamed, I'm a note taker by the way. I'm going to be your best friend today. I'm going to be really, really helpful with the slides that I've got. Who are not note-takers? Strap in. I would suggest take notes um, for, what, for what we're going to do. Okay, let us begin with the first town of Ephesus. This is the first town. So as you kind of go on the boat from Patmos to, um, into Asia Minor, which is now known as Turkey, you first come to Ephesus. It was a gateway to Asia Minor. It's the region's trade past this point. That's where the main trade occurred. And the church, they were praised. So you see, they prayed for their deeds, their hard work, their perseverance. They rejected false teaching. They were conscientious. Doctrinally, uh, doctrinally sound church, solid in what they were saying. They lost against the, uh, the Nico Latents, Nico Latents. They, they, they're going to be referenced again, by the way. They are a cult that basically is saying, hey, to be a Christian is you add a whole bunch of other Jewish things as well. So Jesus is great. Like, he, you know, follow Jesus. Yeah, like that, that works. But to really follow him, you also have to do a whole bunch of other stuff as well, including some pagan stuff and some Jewish stuff. And that, that's what they were. And the church is praised to say, you stand firm against this. Your theology 
Your doctrine is solid. You run a great membership course. It's really good how you kind of solve it. However, as we reference in the latter parts of the letter, they have a problem. The problem is, as you can see, again, don't take it. See, see, best friend today. They have fallen and forgotten their first love. They've forsaken their love that they first started with. Now, you kind of kind of go, well, your theology is great. Why is this that important? Well, Jesus considers it so important to the fact where he says, I will remove you from your lampstand. I will, remo- I will remove you from that holy place, the, the fulfillment of the tabernacle. I'm going to remove you if you do not consider this. Whoa. Significant. Okay, so we, we read about this first love. What does this mean? Well, loads of commentators talk about it in different ways. But I think a really good, helpful way to understand it is coming from the golden commandment, where Jesus said, love the Lord with all your heart, um, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbours and yourself. There's a moment they, they made the choice to say, actually, I believe in this. I understand God's love, and I want to love him back. I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And in the same way, I want to love like God, love your neighbour as yourself. That's why that summary is there. This generation would have been after Paul who founded the church. And so they would have started to kind of understand the deep intent and um, understanding of theology. But how they loved was lost. How they loved was lost. It's really important for us to know that when it comes to theology, when it comes to these kind of things, it has to also be applied. It's where James three and uh, James two and Romans three has a perfect blend of faith and works. Yes, faith matters, but it needs to be expressed from a loving way. Faith is, is how we're saved. Faith by works is meaningless. That's where that perfect blend is. Is grace and love fulfilled in application? Not religious intent. That's what that is. We can often find ourselves. Um, being proud of not letting our theology be affected by worldly ideas. But then, what we then do about it, how we discuss, how we position ourselves, could fall under worldly priorities. Living for the treasures of the earth, rather than living out of love. We need to make sure we're looking back at the reason of why we came to Christ. If you were a Christian today, the moment you made the choice to follow Christ, what was it about it that made you Make that choice. What was it about it that your first love, that choice to say, I want to belong to Christ, I give him my life. What was about that moment that you chose to do it? And if that moment hasn't expanded more and you haven't fallen more in love with Christ and let that love explore more, then we have forgotten our first love. It's looking back at the reason why we gave our lives to Christ and it's making sure we're looking ahead to see the fulfillment of God's love in our lives play out. How we carry ourselves is key. It's not about carelessly thinking about stuff, and it's not about condemning those who think differently, but it's about loving. If God is, if God is a God of love, then we need to love. I think often we can get caught up in secondary issues and treat them as if they're gospel issues. I think we can so easily do that. We get caught up in secondary issues, and that's the reason why I can't be like this. What? No, gospel issues are gospel issues. Secondary issues are the stuff. Tell you one gospel issue, love. 
has a gospel issue. And so if we're not loving in all, um, in all that we do, then it doesn't make sense. I think sometimes we try, our, our desire when we're having conversation is to trump other people and put down other people and we, we move banter, which is kind of joking, into something else rather than actually just loving people. Rather than God letting God's love pour out from us. And if there are issues that need to be dealt with, 2 Timothy 2 calls us to do this out of what? Love and grace. Yes, love and grace can be firm, but it's still love and grace. It's so simple to slip into aggression and rejection by saying it from a theological standpoint rather than loving. We need to hold on to our doctrine. It is vital we hold on to our doctrine, but we do it from a place of love. Why? Jesus says, because we then get to have the tree of life. Be with him forever. Okay, that's our first stop, Ephesus. Let's go to Sim. Oh, no. Smyrna, that's the one. Okay. Smyrna. Where that is, is a harbour and flourishing trade. That's where it was. It was also the centre of uh, the imperial cult, where the newest temple at the time was being built in that location. As a place, uh, it was destroyed uh, in the 6th century BC and rebuilt, which is why you kind of got a reference to uh, the first and last who died and came to life. Jesus saying, I know how that feels because you as a city have done that. I'm also that. Finding a relational link there. It was a small church, but it was facing significant persecution. This was one of the two places that probably the most Christians were killed, slaughtered, murdered from in this place. So it was a poor church. Why was it poor? Because it was trying to stand firm. Remember what I said, if you want to succeed, you want to be um, rich, you worship Caesar. They were not doing that, so they were poor and small. And yet, they are called rich. How does that work? Well, you might be earthly and financially poor, but you can be spiritually rich. And that's what this church was. They were rich. They refused to get involved with pagan rituals, and therefore spiritually rich, relying on God. Jesus had no complaint about this church, but gave pastoral encouragement, saying, keep on going. Keep on going. He calls out um, 10 days as a symbol of limited, talk about persecution in 10 days, as a symbol saying it will be a final time that you will go for persecution. Hey, hold on to it. Keep on going. I will give you the victor's crown, this crown of royalty, this crown of victory, considered in royalty for time to come. It's really interesting that Jesus, what he doesn't say is, hey, it'll be okay. What he says is, keep on going through persecution. Keep on going. I don't think as um, the West we understand what that truly means. I think we're going to. I, I don't think we know what that means, really. Right? I think we're going to. What's the encouragement? Keep on going. Stand firm. Don't back down. Take on the tests, even to the point of death. For us, it could be social death, being cancelled. Keep on going. Stand firm. You will get the victor's crown. It's really encouraging. 
continue on our journey. Pergamum. Jesus starts by saying he knows this place. And boy, what a place this is. It is a religious center full of pagan temples. It's dominated by this massive altar to Zeus on the top of a hill. It, like, it is covered with pagan worship in this way. It was a place where the first emperor temple was built. And Jesus starts an encouragement saying, you remain true to my name. Really helpful. He mentions um, Antipas, uh, say my faithful witness. Witness in the original Greek before being translated differently basically meant martyr. My faithful martyr killed for my name. Jesus speaks in a way of encouragement. However, he doesn't hold back. He goes on to say, there are some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam. Okay, we've got a reference here. What is Balaam? Well, Balaam is a story in the Old Testament, Numbers 22 to 25, and it refers to the king Balak, king of Moab, basically to the prophet Balaam, hey, say some prophetic words that are against the Jewish people. Like, make up, make up some stuff that's going to be against the Jewish people. And Balaam prays and prophesies, and it's all for the Jewish people. It's all to bless them. And Balak is like, what are you doing? Like, I asked you to pray against them. Balaam's like, I can't, like, I can't do anything about that. And so he comes up with a different plan, which is basically saying, tell you what we'll do. Let's get a whole bunch of um, Moabite women to seduce the men of Israel, leading them into immortality and lead them away from God. So the direct attack of speaking prophetic words against the, God, uh, the people of God didn't work. But instead of doing that, let's do something a little bit more subtle and go within the culture and distract them and pull them away. Destroy them from the inside. It's referencing, as I said, the cult that would likely, um, uh, at that time, for Christians to uh, fall away and start following the imperial cult at that time. It's probably referencing them, probably referencing the pagan worship and rituals that some of these people were falling into. Though only some of them were doing it, as you can say, as you can see, the majority were not stamping it out. That's the problem. Yeah, okay, the problem is that a, a set of them were falling into the imperial cult. The problem, bigger problem, is the fact that no one was saying, wait a second, this isn't right. We've got to stamp this out. This is not correct. How are we letting this start to fester and come up in the church? Christ says he will judge them. He will judge them. Uh, will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Ian covered that last week, the idea of judgment. Sword coming out of my mouth is quite an image, do you know what I mean? Like, no, no one really has that. It's real judgment by saying, I will cut you, I will judge you if you do not repent. For us nowadays, I wonder if it's similar to our you do you culture. It's all right, you do you. I'm a Christian, that's fine, but I am doing this. It's all right, you do you. It's your body, your choice. That's fine. I wonder if it's similar to our culture in this day and age. Beloved family, if, if we are following that culture of saying that you do you, you're a Christian, but you've got to do this, you do you, I think we are following the same lineage of Balaam. By not holding on to clear doctrine, by lying and saying, oh, it's okay. Jesus will forgive you, like being a bit too liberal while you're Christian. I wonder, 
I wonder. We could be in danger in doing the same thing. We need to stamp out false teachings. What does the Bible say? What does the word say? That's what we align to. There's no addition. There's no extra. There's no caveats. Yeah, we, we understand what the Bible is saying and we take it at that. We understand the context of where the Bible is written from and we take the primary points. But we don't add in some caveats going, yeah, but you are really struggling, so you do you. Wait a second, no. We, we love, we affirm, we encourage, we restore, we take them to Christ. It's not you do you, it's Christ did it all. That's what it is. That's what it is. It's about being countercultural, being willing to not be distracted, but by holding on to authentic doctrine of what the Bible calls us to do. That's what it is. If we do that, what happens? Well, Jesus says, He feeds us with manna. I'm so grateful in the Lord's Prayer, give us our daily bread. God feeds us, He feeds my soul. But more than that, he gives a name, a new name, or a white stone. A white stone in that time was basically how they judged people. You either had a black stone or a white stone, and you put them forward to see which one is, uh, are you innocent or guilty? If it was a white stone, you're innocent. He's saying that your new name is on an innocent white stone. You are deemed as perfect. I've given you a new name. I've reaffirmed you, restated you. Think about Saul and Paul, the new name of Paul, reaffirmed, restated Paul. That's what that means. That's outstanding. Take the new name that we've been given, child. We've been given a new name of child. Are we living like it? Are we living like it? Let's go to the next one on our journey. Thyatira. Interesting, interesting place. It was the commercial centre of trade guilds. That's what this place was. And I'm much to commend about it. In fact, if you look, it's kind of slightly opposite of Ephesus. Ephesus, they've fallen away from their first love. And Thyatira, oh wow, my words are a bit messed up, but it says, your love and faith, you are, your service and perseverance, that you are doing more than you did at first. So you've grown. You've grown as a church. You've grown wonderfully as a church. More than you were at the beginning. However, they were allowing compromise among them, reference to Jezebel. It talks about that woman Jezebel. That's reference to 1 Kings, again, an Old Testament reference. 1 Kings 16. What we have is Jezebel came uh, and, and married King Ahab. And he, she brought Baal to be worshipped instead of God. And the idea is that she brought Baal to be worshipped and in the same hand she persecute God's prophets. That's why at the beginning of the story of Elijah, you, you have this moment uh, where he is called as a prophet because other prophets have been killed. And then at the moment after the whole Baal situation, Jezebel threatens, Elijah runs, he prays a suicidal prayer, God restores him, and, and you know, there's, there's great wealth, not going into it, there's great wealth that can take from that story. But that was the idea of Jezebel, she said, there's a new God, let's kill off all the other prophets. So you need to worship Baal. Now I'll tell you what was interesting about this story. What's interesting is that they didn't end up worshipping Baal solely. That's not what happened. What happened is that they worshipped Baal alongside God. They would flip-flop Sunday, God. Monday, Baal. Tuesday, God. Wednesday, Baal. Thursday, it was like a Baal day. 
Friday. Do you see what, like, that's what they would happen. They would flip-flop, worshipping one God to the other. And one of Elijah's words, why he was challenging Baal, was basically say, choose one. Which one are you going to choose? Which one's the right God? Which one's, which one's the alive God? That's what this whole story, the famous story, is basically from that place of saying, which one are you going to choose? You can't have both. It's not a great area. It's not 60, 50, like 40%. It's 100% which one are you going to choose? That was the idea. Therefore, Jezebel is actually a symbol. It's often what we kind of talk about, a Jezebelic spirit. One who distracts, one who brings di- division. Jesus actually uses an analogy about this, about spiritual adultery. Cheating on God with another God. It's the words that he uses. Spiritual adultery. Saying, even though you belong to me, you're going to use, uh, you're going to go and find another God in that way. It's kind of idea of, as for my body, my choice. So I do what I want with it. It's not my body, my choice. It's God's temple, his choice. That's what that is. Even if the outward appearance might seem fine, it's who's sitting on the throne of your heart and mind. That's what's important. That's the reality. You can't have more than one God. What's our God? Well, you can't have more than one God. God or money. Which one are you going to choose? That's the reality. We've, we've got idols day and age. Even if we don't have them on statues and temples, we've still got idols in this day and age. Money. It can become an idol. God or money. Which is it? Tell you what. Next generation. Exams. It can become an idol. Beloved parents. I think exams can become an idol in households. Which is it? God or exams. Choose one. Which is it? You, you can't have both. You can't on some days be like, I trust in God, on the next day, yeah, but exams are really, really important, so they have to focus on that and not do anything to do with Jesus. Which is it? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, it, it's one or the other. You can't have both. One of them's dead, the other's God. Choose it. <laughs> that, that's the reality. The instruction is clear. Hold on to the gospel. Don't be swayed. Culture will want to sway us. Culture's voice will want to say, you do whatever you want. It doesn't matter what you do. There's other things that are more important. You can't survive without money. You can't do this without social status. God is saying, I'm all that you need. I'm all that you need. He's given us authority as as reference. He's given us authority to speak over the world. Are you living under that, with and under that authority, or you fall under the authority of man? Which is it? Let's go to the next one. Sardis. You still with me? Yes? Yeah. You still on the train rides? Yeah. We don't need a lunch break? No? We're good? Okay. I'm not going to give you the option. Um, Sardis. Let's go to the next church. This city was surrounded by three sides of cliffs. So the residents felt that the city was basically secure, done, impregnable. The church actually felt no different and therefore it became complacent. Jesus doesn't pull any punches back. We learned that from Luke. He doesn't put, put, pull any punches back. He says directly to the church, wake up. <laughs> wake up. I imagine it's like the same of, uh, I don't know if Tom referenced New Day. Uh, there are some wonderfully, wonderful churches that love to bring an air horn and pots and pans 
uh, I, I stress lovely churches, that then blow on the air horn and bang the pans to wake up their youth from their slumber. I feel it's similar to what Jesus is doing here. It's like a, like a proper like, wake up, get up. Come on, it's time to get up. That's what I feel Jesus is doing here. Remember and repent. That's what he's saying. It's taking the reality of what Jesus called us for. Jesus is basically saying this glossy image of what you think Christianity is, it's not that. This kind of nice, happy, clappy image of Christianity, it's not that. Come be authentic. Hey, beloved family, if you think Christianity is inoffensive or mundane or boring, lovingly, I feel very stirred to say, wake up. It's none of those things. It's an adventure with the High King. We've been, we've been made alive with the Holy Spirit. We've been made alive with the Holy Spirit. So we must wake up. That's why we're doing stuff like mission. That's why Ian's gone to, uh, to Poland to be able to give stuff over. Because we want to be awake and alive with what God is calling us. Rather than just being asleep in our own building. Let's not be lazy and looking at past experience and past achievements, but not planning for the battle ahead. I loved Celebration Sunday on the 3rd of April. It was a great time hearing what God has done in the church, hearing great things. I'll tell you the worst thing that could happen out of it, for us to just not be bothered about what's to come next. The worst thing that could happen is to hear all the words from Norman and to hear all the things that we're doing and hear all the encouragement of what God has asked in terms of the prophetic and then the next day, basically being like, that was good, wasn't it? Let's just continue what we're doing. Yeah. Now, we're meant to be faith-filled. We're meant to be carrying the word and spirit hand in hand. Yeah. When was the last time you got on your knees in front of your father because you're dealing with a problem? You're saying, God, I don't know what to do with it. Please, can you answer? When, when was the last time we've done this? We can fall into casual Christianity. The temptation of growing up in the church. Man, lovingly, I see that. I, I saw this in myself growing up as youth, and, I, and I, I see that sometimes in young people. Casual Christianity, just going up at youth, going to church for the sake of going to church, while not actually taking hold of the relationship that God has called us to do. It's the same as what we're seeing in culture of what you feel is true. Kind of what I feel is what is my truth, rather than having absolute truth. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a why. doesn't really matter. I feel like it's true today, so it's true. Why then grabbing hold to what Jesus has called to be true? In fact, Jesus uses this analogy of saying, you are so lazy that some of you have soiled your clothes. You're so lazy that you wouldn't even get up to go to the toilet and instead has defecated into your own clothes. <laughs> That's the analogy here. That's how lazy some, that he's calling out. But he's saying for some of those who are not that, for some of those who are not that, you will be victorious, dressed in white, pure, perfect. There is a call to repent and make sure that what we're doing is we're walking with God. Why? Because he is the one who has clothed us in white. Our actions don't close us in white. He has clothed us in white, and so we should walk in the adventure that he has called us to do. That's what that is. Even to the point of the day of his return, Walking closely with him. Okay, next one, Philadelphia. We'll rush through this one a little bit. 
as a church has been completely ex um, excluded by all the communities about it. In a sense, locked out. Literally locked out. Interesting, Jesus says, um, uh, see, I place you before you an open door that no one can shut. He calls out the culture of what they're experiencing at the time. Now, obviously, the door is not physical. It's not talking about the Holy Land, going to Israel, or anything like that. It's not even talking about making a certain country holy, but it's talking about the way to God is fully open, i.e. Jesus. And that will never be shut. The church is said to have little strength due to its sheer fight against the cultural curve, but it has remained faithful. Again, calling them and giving them a new name. What's the encouragement here? Remain faithful. Keep going. Be resilient. Even if doors get shut against us. I wonder how many times we feel like it's easy to compromise what we believe in just to keep a wedge of a door open rather than knowing that if a door is to shut, it's by the grace of God that we've remained faithful in him. I wonder. Last city where you can get off at Laodicea. Let's talk about this church. Three famous things about this church. It was the banking centre of Asia Minor. A lot of money. It was a medical centre, in particular for eye ointment. And it had a clothing centre, famous for black wool. It was well off. It did well. In fact, when an earthquake occurred, uh, on the city and broke it all down. Uh, other cities said, we'll give you help. And Laodicea was like, no, we're good. We have enough money, we're fine. Just completely reliant on themselves. That's money, like, that's another level, really, in that way. The area was affluent and self-reliant, and therefore the church, seemingly, there was no difference. Laodicea had two neighbors around it, um, Hierapolis and Colosseum. Apollos had hot waters that would use medicinal um, benefits, uh, and Colossia had cold water, which would always be healthy to drink and also to warm up. Laodicea had no water source, so what they did was they said, you know what, we like the hot water, let's pipe that in into our city, and then we can have that. Here's the problem. As they were piping it in, the, hot, the heat of the water would then go out into the pipe and the lime scale from the pipes would then start increasing. So when the water came into Laodicea, it was tepid, dirty and full of lime scale. At times, it like Kent water, like it was full of lime scale, during really hard water, like full of, it coated the pipes um, of, uh, for the water that was pouring into Laodicea. The water was useless and distasteful. Helpful to know, as we hear probably one of these famous verses from Revelations of you are, named, you are lukewarm, be the hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of the mouth. It's not just the fact that it's kind of just tepid water, it was tepid, disgusting water. And Jesus was using that as an analogy about the church. What Jesus was saying is, I feel sick when I think about your church, to the extent that I want to spit you out. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> like, really, really encouraging, Jesus. Um, that's what he was saying. The church was trying to live, basically, without Jesus. Being self-reliant on themselves. Brought into being comfortable, complacent. Complete about self-satisfaction. We're good, we're fine. The war, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's, doesn't matter if it's tepid and cold. Well, tepid and scaly. It's fine, it doesn't matter, we all eat. 
We've done it ourselves, so we're fine. Jesus states quite the opposite of what they're kind of known for. The fact that they are poor, blind, naked. The complete opposite of what the town was producing. And Jesus, in the same breath, says, the same verses again, as a way of love, by the way, it's really interesting. He says nothing to commend the church, and yet he still invites them in with love. Just really interesting. Cycling. But he says these same verses, I stand and knock at the door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat with that person and they will be with me. Fascinating. Because he, we often take this verse about those who don't believe in Christ. It's often referenced sometimes in Alpha, really, really helpful. And we often use this verse as a way of saying those who don't believe, Jesus knocked on the door, if you open the door, he'll answer. He wasn't referring to non-Christians, he wasn't referring to those who didn't believe. He was referring to those who did believe, but were all about themselves. That's what he was referring to. Yes, of course, it's a, it's a verse that is used for evangelism, but it should be a verse also used for, for conviction if we are reliant on ourselves. We are making it about us. What Jesus is asking for is for fellowship. Jesus asking for fellowship. I'm here. I want, I want to be with you. But what you've done is you've shut the door and just said, we're good, we're fine by ourselves, and said that you believe. I wonder whether sometimes, looking at the culture that we are, which is affluent in the West, whether when it comes to stuff about Christ, whether we keep the door shut. And it's only the moments when it's really hard that we take our paracetamol of faith just to cure the headache of sin and persecution, to then say, I'm good just for this moment. Rather than saying, every single moment of our life, I want to whack this door, I want to break this door in half to allow a full entering of Jesus to come in. I wonder. Well, yeah. So let me come into that. So we've gone through the seven cities, we've gone through the churches. Really interesting. I said that this is the key to understanding this book. Well, the reason why is because what you have called out in each one of these letters, there's then symbols and analogies used in the rest of the book. So you have this idea of the great dragon eating sheep. Well, that's what Simara was, um, Simmerna, that's the one, Simmerna was going through. You have the calling out to the great prostitute. Well, Jezebel was called out, a Jezebelic spirit causing spiritual adultery. That's what you have. So the symbols that you have in the rest of the book are used as kind of the beginning, zoomed in analogy for the different cities. So I urge you, read Revelation this week with the lens that I'm describing it as. And it genuinely helps. It really is helpful. But what does it mean for us, applicationally? Well, there's clear instructions here. I think. Let's not compromise ourselves to the world. Let's not compromise ourselves to temptation. Let's not be complacent with early riches. Let's recognise and deal with Jezebelic spirits and false theology. Let's not be super spiritual and let's not be lukewarm. Here's my challenge to us. How distracted are you from your relationship with Christ? Are you, are you too comfortable in kind of just leaning into what Jesus has done rather than living out the adventure he's called you to? Are you asleep? 
Are you spiritually asleep? Some of you might be after my preach, but still. Are you spiritually asleep? If so, we've got to wake up. We've got to be a church on mission. Are you self-reliant, not allowing God into the, uh, the inner workings of your life? Or are you completely reliant on Jesus? We're going to just take a moment now. We're going to take communion together. Uh, so there's, there's going to be, there are some bread and wine at the back. There's gluten-free bread and juice at the back there. There's bread and wine here. What I would just love for us to do as we kind of take communion is, um, if you want to stand, grab uh, a shot of wine um, and some bread, uh, and then go back to your seats. That would be really helpful. So let's go do that now. Church, let's, let's just grab so we can get ready for communion in that way. Now, when you've got it, you return to your seats. Uh, but why don't you stand with me when you return as well? We've been, I'm sure you've been seen for too long. love, conviction, and challenge, and not condemnation. I hope you've heard that. Because man, have I been challenged by this. The question that is easy to ask out of this is, what church are you? Truthfully, I think I've been all seven in times of my life. In particular, the five that have been, like, convicted. Now, I, I just want to really honestly say this. Like, I'm, I'm saying this from a place of vulnerability. I have definitely been from some of these churches. I've definitely been spiritually asleep sometimes. I've definitely been self-reliant. It's so easy to be self-reliant when you have stuff. And so I really want to say this from a place. I'm just going to pray for us and guide us in doing communion together. Um, but this, I really want to give this a moment where we are coming before our Father and just, as he calls us many times in these verses, repent and remember. Yeah. So I'm going to guide us in remembering. But I cannot repent on your behalf. It's for you. And so if there is stuff that, I, that has come out of these churches and out of these letters that you're like, you know what? I feel really convicted and challenged about this one today. Jesus says it's an open door where you can repent, give that to him, and become aligned with what he's called us to be like. So I'm going to pray us and help us remember and guide us through this. And then I'm going to give a moment just to stop and be silent. And then we'll finish. Okay, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. We partake in this believer's meal, recognising the fulfilment, Jesus, of what you've done on the cross and the life that we get to live in the adventure with God. 
And so we, we take the bread, remembering your body broken for us. Let's have the bread. Mm. Jesus, remember your body torn, broken for our salvation so that we could be redeemed and made whole in you. In the same way, remember Jesus, your blood that was poured out to cover our sin. Let's take the wine. Now, Father, we just wait just to allow you to stir like anything in our hearts that needs to just be dealt with. We pray. Thank you, Jesus, that it's an easy door in. You've made the way. And so, Father, I pray that we would live a life that is alive, that is awake, that is reliant on you, that is taking joy in the adventure despite the persecution, despite the things that might come up. Let us be grounded and found in you as you are the perfecter and founder of our faith. We say this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Just quickly, if there's anything that I've said that has stirred up anything and you want prayer for it, we're going to have a prayer team that's here that would love to pray for you. If you've never given your life to Christ and anything that I've said is to stir you, I would love to speak to you at the end. We're going to call it there. There'll be teas and coffees at the back. Uh, those who have brought kids, please get them. The kids work team have served well to keep them down there for that long. Be blessed. Have a great banquet.